Good morning. My name is Kevin, and I'm excited to be here with you this morning. I'll start with a little personal update. Um, some of you may know that my wife has been pregnant for, you know, almost nine months, a little over nine months. Uh, a few of you have asked if the baby has arrived yet. Yes, she has. She arrived three weeks ago. We had a beautiful little girl. Her name is Ivy. If I was a good dad and had any sense about me, I would show you a photo of her right now. But I don't have one. Thank you, Kathy. I hear you. It's like, how did I not think about showing my daughter? So I'm going to just pass my phone around. And oh, good. I just came up with that. That was funny. Um, And so, yes, her name is Ivy. She's doing great. Paige is doing well. All of our other kids uh, love her and are enjoying her. Uh, For those of you who don't know, Ivy is our sixth child. Uh, and so I cannot believe I'm a father of six children, but I can tell you that the experience of new life never gets old. It never gets old. It's such an amazing experience. There's something special about new life. There is uh, something in us that inherently appreciates uh, and even reveres new life when we see it. There is joy. There is hope. Uh, there's the anticipation And yet at the opposite end of the spectrum, there's something in us that inherently knows that death is wrong. That instead of joy and hope and anticipation, uh, death brings with it mourning and grief and sadness. And that's why we all long and we all want a life that never ends, right? We all want a life where there is no sickness or death and no pain or sadness. We want a life that is filled with unending joy an unending satisfaction, a life of never-ending peace and rest. We all instinctively want to live happily ever after. And so the question is, how do we get it? And this is the question that ultimately the Apostle John, the writer of the Gospel of John, seeks to answer for us. We're continuing in our series uh, called Planted Today. We're come to the Gospel of John. If you've been following along in the reading plan, we're right where about halfway through the Gospel of John. Uh, if you haven't started with us, feel free to, to join us and to pick up. Uh, we got lots of the New Testament to read through the rest of this fall. And um, if you're, in case you're fairly new to the Bible, the Gospel of John is one of the first four books in the New Testament. Testament. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one of these gospel accounts gives us a different view or a different vantage point uh, on the life and the ministry of Jesus. Now, the author John is one of my favorite New Testament writers. Uh, A few facts about him. John had a brother named James, and his father's name was Zebedee. And together, James and John and Zebedee had a family fishing business. But Jesus was one of the first two disciples to spend time and to follow Jesus. Imagine what that would have been like to be one of the first two to spend an afternoon with Jesus. He was one of the closest uh, people to Jesus. In fact, many say that he probably had the closest relationship with Jesus. At the very least, we know that John deeply loved Jesus. He felt deeply loved by Jesus. Throughout his gospel account, John never actually mentions his own name. Instead, John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so John had this close personal relationship with Jesus. He felt loved by Jesus. And it's from that kind of vantage point, from that perspective, that he's going to write his gospel. And today we're going to do a quick overview of all 21 chapters in the gospel of John. Never done that before. Uh, Personally, this is fun. Uh, We're going to just hit, uh, go through it pretty quick. We're just going to highlight just a few major themes. 
And we'll pull these themes from a statement that John makes towards the end of his gospel account. Thankfully, uh, John kind of gives us a summary statement at the very end of his gospel that kind of gives him the purpose or the reason or why he wrote his account. It's found in John chapter 20, verse 31. John writes, but these are written, these are written, everything he's written in the previous uh, 19, 20 chapters, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there's a few themes here in this summary statement, uh, kind of three parts to why he wrote his gospel. And we're going to look at each of these three. Let's start with the first one. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. If John were here this morning, if he could come to us, I think he'd say the number one reason why he wrote his gospel, his goal for you and for me is to read his account and walk away being persuaded to believe that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Messiah and the Son of God. We see this in his opening words uh, of his book. Let's jump all the way back to the start of his gospel in John chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what we read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was, been, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I want to highlight a couple things here. First, if you read the opening chapters of the Bible, you'll notice that the language that John uses here in this verse is very similar. John, John's opening statements mirror the opening statements of the book of Genesis, and he does that very intentionally. Right out of the gate, John introduces Jesus as God. When he refers to, and he refers to Jesus as the word and the word was Jesus and he was with God and he was God and through Jesus, all things were made. And Jesus was there with the father in the beginning, creating the heavens and the earth. And in Jesus was life. Jesus was the creator of life. He's the source of all life. Author N.T. Wright says that John is presenting Jesus right out of the gate as a new Genesis, if you will. And so John opens his gospel account and immediately makes the bold claim that Jesus was God. He was the son of God. And that's a big, big, bold claim to make about someone. And so after introducing Jesus as God in chapter one, he's going to go on in chapters two through 12, kind of the first major half of a uh, portion of his account. He's going to give evidence and support to provide, uh, to, to prove his claim. And John does that by recording a series of stories about Jesus. Each of these stories uh, in each of these stories, Jesus is either performing a miraculous sign or he's making a bold claim about himself. He's revealing his identity, Jesus's identity to people. That's how we learn people's identity. That's how your identity is formed. It's through the story of your life. It's through the story of Jesus's life that he reveals his identity. There are seven miraculous signs that John points to. The first one he is when he, Jesus turns water into wine. The second is when Jesus heals the nobleman's son, sick son. The third one is when Jesus heals the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethsaida. Then he, Jesus takes five loaves of bread and two small fish and he feeds 5,000. Jesus walks on water. Jesus heals the blind man, giving back his sight. And then maybe in the most miraculous sign of all, Jesus raised Lazarus, his friend, from the dead. 
Now, John intends for these stories to be evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. These are the signs that point to and that were like uh, signposts indicating that Jesus is God. But John also includes seven I am statements throughout his gospel. Here are the seven I am statements. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Seven times, Jesus, uh, John records Jesus saying, this is who I am. Now, if you remember in our reading, or if you remember from the book of Exodus, when Moses first encountered God at the burning bush, he asked God a question. Do you remember what he asked God? What is your name? And God simply responded by saying, I am. And so when John records and includes these seven I am statements of Jesus, he's doing so very intentionally. He's doing so in an effort to accomplish his goal which is to convince us that Jesus is the same God who met with Moses in the burning bush. That this is Jesus, the Son of God, now in the flesh, in the form of a man. Now, the BibleProject.com points out that these seven I am statements and the seven miraculous signs all have the same basic pattern. And the pattern is simply this, that Jesus will do something or he'll say something and his actions or his claims about himself immediately create some kind of controversy and tension. At the end of each of these stories in chapters 2 through 12, the people are forced to make a decision about who they believe Jesus is. And so by organizing his gospel account in this way, John is trying to force you and me, the readers, to make a decision about Jesus too. So let me just ask you this morning. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Sometimes I think because many of us have grown up exposed to Christianity to some degree, we can forget how bold and audacious Jesus' claims really were. But John wants to make sure that we understand the significance and the audacity of his claims and the result and what it caused. The very claims that Jesus made are what resulted in his crucifixion and death. In fact, John often recorded how the Jewish leaders responded to Jesus' claim to be God. They viewed his claims to be blasphemous. And according to Old Testament law, Jesus was deserving of death. Let's just look at two of these examples. In John chapter 5, John, in chapter 5, John tells a story about uh, Jesus healing a paralyzed man, okay? The man hadn't walked in 38 years. He had been an invalid for 38 years. He had been paralyzed 30 years. And Jesus says, get up and walk. And sure enough, he miraculously does just that. Well, Jesus did this on the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders are furious with him. This was a no-no. Let's pick it up in verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day. I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Oftentimes, people will say, well, Jesus was just a good moral teacher, or he was a good prophet. He was maybe sent from God, but he wasn't God's son. He wasn't God in the flesh. He wasn't the Messiah, the Christ. My question is always, well, well then why did, why did they kill him? 
you don't just kill good teachers. You don't just kill prophets from God. The Jewish leaders killed him. They crucified him because he claimed to be God. There's a, this is one of two texts I like to kind of equip people with. If you're having a conversation with someone, maybe you've got a friend or a coworker or a neighbor who's a non-Christian, and they're not sure that Jesus was God, this is one of the stories that you can tell or one of the verses you can open up the Bible and you can point to and say, look, he claimed to be God. This is why the Jewish leaders actually crucified him. This is why they wanted to kill him, because he claimed to be God. Let's look at another example real quickly in John chapter 10. Here Jesus is in the temple courts, and the Jewish leaders ask him, if you're the Messiah, just tell us. And he says, I did tell you, but you didn't believe me. And the miraculous signs I do, I do in my father's name. And he says, my father and I are one. Well, once again, this doesn't go over well. And so they pick up stones, and they're about to stone Jesus. Verse 32, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the father. Notice Jesus keeps pointing to the father. He doesn't, he doesn't seek any glory of his, of his own. He doesn't try to take credit for it. He just got, I, I'm doing my father's work. I'm obeying my father. It's my father who's doing this through me. And he says, I've shown you many good works from the father. For which of these do you stone me? And then they say this, we're not stoning you. We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I have said you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Do we not have that part? The next verse? Okay. Oh, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep reading. All right. So why, why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said I'm God's son? Do not believe me. Here's what Jesus says. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But verse 38, but if I do them, even though I, you do not believe me, believe the works. Jesus says, look, believe the works, the signs, the things I'm doing, the things I'm saying. They are designed, he says, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And they again tried to seize him and he escaped the grass. Once again, Jesus is saying, listen, I am in the Father. The Father's in me. I am one with the Father. I am God's son. I'm here to do my Father's work. And they said, that's blasphemy. And so are you catching this pattern? Jesus performs a miraculous sign where he makes a bold claim about himself as the, as, the, as the son of God, and it creates this tension. The tension is between two responses, either belief or unbelief. You either believe Jesus' claims to be God or you think that he was blasphemous. Jesus forced people to make a decision. I don't know where you are in your relationship with the Lord. I don't know where you are in your journey with God. But maybe Jesus is coming to you this morning through these stories, through his word here in the Gospel of John. And once again, Jesus is asking you to make a decision. Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God? Webster's Dictionary defines believe like this. He says, it's to accept or regard something as true. So to believe is to accept or regard something as true. So in our culture, if you believe something, you accept it or regard it as true. I believe the earth is round. I accept that truth. And so uh, I believe that. Now, when Jesus uses the word believe in his gospel, when John uses the word believe in his gospel account, he means to accept or regard uh, something that is true, but he means much more than that. It's the Greek word pistuo, and it's a really significant word to John. Matthew uses this word believe 14 times in his gospel. Mark uses this word 11 times in his gospel. Luke uses it nine times. The apostle John uses it 98 
times. One author said you could call John's gospel the gospel of belief. Now here's the thing. The word is a verb, not a noun. I have belief versus the act, the ongoing act of believing. John doesn't call us to belief as if it were past tense complete. We are called to an active, ongoing belief. Author Beth Moore, in her study on the Apostle John, poses this question. Is the scope of your belief in Christ in the past tense security of salvation kind of belief? Or, I love this, can you be caught in the active, ongoing lifestyle of believing Christ today? In other words, Moore writes, are we simply nouns, believers, or are we verbs, believing? See, John is not trying to persuade us to believe a fact about Jesus. John wants us to have a living and active relationship with Jesus. We can often, mistaken, we can often mistakenly view our belief in Jesus as a ticket to heaven. You've heard this uh, analogy before. If we ascribe to an intellectual belief in the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, then we get this golden ticket, if you will, and we put it in our pockets and we kind of hold on to it and guard it throughout our life here on earth. And then one day when we die, we get to stand before God and we pull that golden ticket out of our, tocket, out of our uh, pocket, we hand it to him, and he says, thanks, come on in. That is not the picture John paints of believing in Jesus for eternal life. See, the moment we believe, we enter into an eternal, life-giving, active, ongoing relationship with Jesus. This is how Jesus himself defined eternal life. And thankfully, John recorded it for us. It's in John chapter 17, verse 3. This is Jesus speaking. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I'm going to leave this up here for a second. According to this verse, according to Jesus, what is eternal life? How does Jesus define it. How would you put it in your own words? It's knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ. And the key word here is the word know. It's the Greek word gnosko. Gnosko is a knowledge grounded in personal experience, or it can mean to be intimately acquainted with. I watched the interview the other day. I watched an interview the other day with a filmmaker who's coming out with a new documentary on the life of Muhammad Ali. This guy's done a ton of research. He's read all the books on Ali. He interviewed dozens of people for his documentary. Now, he knows a lot about Muhammad Ali, but he never actually met him personally. He doesn't gnosko Muhammad Ali. I, on the other hand, have met Muhammad Ali. So I was born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky, where Ali is from. And one day, when I was about 10, 12 years old, I can't remember, uh, Ali was at a store in Louisville, uh, a department store called Bacon's. It's kind of like it was kind of like Macy's uh, or Kohl's, and uh, I think he was selling cologne. <laughs> and uh, and so he was there signing autographs. And my mom decided she was going to take my brothers and I to go see him. And uh, I met him. I interacted with him. We stood in line, interacted with him for about thirty seconds. And somewhere there's a photo of it uh, to prove it. Um, but do I know? Do I know Muhammad Ali? See, according to Jesus, eternal life is knowing him. It's having a close, personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. And so when does eternal life begin? 
It begins the moment you believe, the moment you enter into that relationship. Eternal life doesn't, eternal life doesn't b- begin when you die. Eternal life begins now, the moment you enter into that intimacy with God. See, eternal life is the life that is to come. It's the future life that's coming into our lives today. It's the future life that we all long for. You know, the one where there's no sickness or death, no pain or sadness, the one where there's unending joy and satisfaction and never-ending peace and rest. You know, the one where we enjoy this close relationship with God and with others, the one where we get to be with Jesus forever and ever face-to-face. We can experience a measure of that eternal life today through a relationship with Jesus. TheBibleProject.com says eternal life is a life infused with God's eternal love and that that eternal love can be experienced today. This is what John wants us to know in his gospel. John wants us to know that Jesus is our source of life. Jesus is your source of life. Now, the word John uses for life throughout his gospel account is the Greek word zoe. Zoe, life, means more than just being alive. Zoe life can be described as a real life or a genuine life. It also can be described as a fullness of life. Zoe life is a rich and satisfying life. Jesus is our source of life. He's our source of a rich, satisfying, real, full life. If you want that kind of life, you can find it in Jesus today. He is the light of the world. Jesus can shine his light into whatever dark circumstances you find yourself today. Jesus is the good shepherd who can take care of you and provide leadership for you today. Today, you can listen to his voice and follow his leadership. The one passage that's really helped me grasp this concept that Jesus is my source of life, uh, maybe, maybe more than any other passage, is if I found it in John chapter 15. I'm going to read a long portion here. It's probably one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I couldn't possibly teach on the Gospel of John without not including uh, this passage. But here's what Jesus says. This is on the last night he's with his disciples. It's right before he's going to go into the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he's going to, he's only hours away from being arrested. Uh, He's less than, I think he's probably less than 12 hours, 24 hours, less than 12 hours from being crucified. One of his final parting words, he says to them, I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Jesus is the true vine. And we are the branches. And he wants to bear fruit in and through us. So let me ask you a question. Just look at this analogy for a minute. You have the vine and the branch and the fruit. Where is the source of life? Is it in the branch? No. The life is in the vine. 
you were to break that branch off the vine and you were to drop it on the ground and you were to come back a few days later, would the branch be alive or dead? It would be dead. Why? Because it had been broken off. It would be not worth nothing more than thrown into a fire. It would have no fruit on it. The life is in the vine. Jesus is saying, I am your source of life. And what does he mean? The vine provides all of the nutrients that the branch needs to produce fruit. Do you know today that every desire, every good godly desire in your heart and every God-given need in your soul is met in Jesus? Everything you need to live in your heart, in your mind, to live the way God designed you to live is actually going to come from and flow from your personal relationship with Jesus, from what he did for you on the cross, from his promises for today and his promises for the future. All of what your heart and soul needs comes from and flows from Jesus. He is the vine. You are a branch. Jesus says, I'll provide all these things. What's the branch's part? To remain. John is trying to give us a picture of what it looks like to believe in Jesus, to stay connected to Jesus, to develop a close relationship with Jesus. Now, how do we enter into that kind of relationship? John 3, 16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You know, the Bible teaches that we have all sinned and we're sinful and broken people living in a sinful, broken world. And at some point we realize we're broken and we we go on the search and we start looking for life in this broken world. God says in Jeremiah 2.13, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. Maybe today you need to be reminded Whatever broken cisterns you're looking to, to bring you living water, it'll never satisfy you. See, the bad news is nothing in this world meets our deepest needs. But the good news is God loved us too much to leave us in our sin and brokenness. The good news is, the good news is Jesus came. He so loved the world that he left heaven and he came to earth and Jesus lived a sinless life. He never disobeyed his father, never turned away. He always obeyed his father all the way to the cross where he died to pay for your sins and mine. He took your place on the cross. And then he rose from the grave. He appeared to his disciples. He ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the father and he is awaiting his return. And how do we enter into that life-giving, eternal relationship with him? It's, It's through belief. It's through faith. It's through trust. I want you to keep in mind, this is really good news to John and the other disciples. Remember, they were Jews and under the Old Testament law, which said you had to keep the commandments and be a morally good person in order to be accepted by God and have a relationship with God. So you can imagine as John followed Jesus for a few years and he learned that Jesus didn't require perfect obedience. He simply asked for belief. How amazing this was for John. And it's good news for us too. Listen, God does not accept us. He doesn't accept you or me because we're morally good people. God doesn't welcome us into an eternal life-giving relationship because we've done more good than bad in our lives. That's not the gospel. The way into relationship with God through Jesus Christ is belief through faith. And that's really good news. 
Maybe you're here, here sitting here this morning and you've never put your faith and trust in Christ. Here's what I know John would say to you. He would simply say this, believe in Jesus. Believe that Jesus is the bread of life, that he's the only one who can satisfy your deepest hunger. Believe that Jesus is the light of the world, that he's the only one who can illuminate the darkness in your heart. Believe that Jesus is the good shepherd, that he's the only place, he's the only one who can truly take care of you and truly provide for you and lead you to a place of peace and rest. Believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, that he's the only one who walked out of his grave. And so you don't have to fear death because he defeated it. And he's the only one who can save you from an eternal death. Believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Believe that Jesus is the vine, that he has all of the resources that your heart and soul needs. Now, most of us who are Christ followers, I think we need to hear this. Keep believing in Jesus. Keep believing in Jesus. See, belief or faith is how we're saved, but it's also how we're sanctified. We come to faith in Jesus. We, we come into a relationship with Jesus through faith. But guess what? We grow in Christ through faith. Every day, in every situation, no matter the circumstances, one step at a time, we keep believing and trusting in Christ. And that's how we grow and are transformed into the image of Christ. That's how we experience his plan for us. My daughter, my oldest daughter, turned 10 years old last week, and uh, one of our gifts to her was to go to the Go Apes, the Go Ape Zipline course at Eagle Creek. Has anybody been to this before? Raise your hand. No one? All right. Well, that's okay. Oh, I see one. There you go. Yes, a Go Aper. All right. Woo! Okay. So, uh, Zips Court. So, it's out in the woods, okay? It's in the wilderness. You climb up a ladder. So, they give you a harness. I should have brought photos for this. They give you a harness, okay? And, uh, and then you climb up these ropes. And you're basically elevated on about, I don't know, 50 feet above the ground uh, and throughout the woods. And you go on, you do these ropes course, you climb, but then you do zip lines, so forth, right? And here's the thing. My sailor was awesome. And we went up there and I was so nervous and I was so anxious. And she's like real brave, you know, she's firstborn. And uh, she's, she's like real bold and she's like, let's do this. And every time on the course where there was a, uh, there was always like uh, uh, several times throughout the course, you, could, you had two options. You could either go the moderate route or the uh, challenging route. And Sayla's like, let's go the challenging route. I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> and so we kept doing the most challenging ones all the way through the course. I was so proud of her. But about halfway through, it dawned on me. There's a teachable moment here. And I don't know if she grasped it or not, but it meant something to me. I said, Sayla, you know what we're doing here? It's a lot like our faith in Jesus. See, the cable that we're hooking our carabiners into, the harness that we're wearing, our faith and our trust, our belief that this cable's gonna hold, that this carabiner is strong, and this harness is gonna keep me from falling. Our faith is in that. Now, here's what's interesting. As you go throughout the course, you have to keep unhooking your carabiner from one wire and hook it to the next one. The only way to move forward is to keep unhooking and rehooking, unhooking and rehooking. We had to do it a hundred times. That's what faith looks like. Every day, no matter the circumstances, no matter the season, no matter what faces you, you got to keep hooking into that line. You got to keep believing and putting your faith and trust in Jesus. And here's the thing. I had told Selah, I said, trust, I kept using, I said, trust the harness will do its part. We have to do our part. The harness will hold you. That's its part. 
What's our part, Selah? Trust it. Keep moving forward in belief. That's our part. See, God says, I will take care of you. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am these things for you. Now, that's my part. But what's your part? Believe. And I think Jesus says to us, maybe Jesus would say to you this morning, I can't believe for you. I can't believe for you. See, that's where we exercise our will. That's our part. We believe. We put our faith and trust in Christ. I want you to think about your current circumstances in life. What's going on in your life right now? Where do you need to trust Jesus to do his part? And where do you need to do your part to keep actively believing and trusting in him? Are you tired and weary? Do you need to trust that he is your strength? Are you confused and discouraged and don't know how things are going to unfold? Do you need to believe that he has the path marked out for you? And you have a question you just don't know the answer to. Do you trust that he is sovereign and he knows things that you don't? Do you have a decision to make? You don't know which one's the right one. Do you have a problem you don't know the solution for? Is it in your marriage? Is it in your parenting? Is it in your work? Is it in your finances? Is it in your physical health? Where do you need to keep believing in Jesus today? Let's end by looking again at that summary verse of John chapter 20. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray specifically that God would accomplish John's goal in our lives. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, and I'm so thankful for the gospel of John and all of the promises that we have. Father, I pray that as a church family, that you would, in fact, accomplish the purpose of John's gospel in our own lives, that you would help us as a church to truly believe by faith that Jesus is the Son of God and that we would keep believing in Jesus and trusting that one day he's going to return and he's going to make all things new. Jesus, you are our source of life. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.